and we will remain seated for our gospel lesson as well. Luke's gospel, the 23rd chapter, I'm going to start one verse sooner than what it says in your bulletin at the 32nd verse. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the places called the skull, they crucified Jesus. There with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by, watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we're getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Our children can go to children's worship. Some run with enthusiasm, some march like an execution is about to take place. <laughs> it's Reign of Christ Sunday, sometimes called Christ the King Sunday. And we're troubled because we have images of King even here in the sanctuary, the beautiful Revelation window and the beautiful artwork that hangs over the choir. And I love the beauty of it. The king imagery bothers me some. I've said in the earlier services, much to the dismay of some, that if I have to listen to one more news report about the royal family in Great Britain, I believe that I will barf. <laughs> the wealth and influence collected in just a few hands due to DNA just offends me. Maybe the royal language offends you as it does me. We think of kings and we think of history, those who have been looters and liars of their own people, who have been hate-filled and power-hungry. It's interesting that we so often have to say, well, he was a good king, because we know so many were not. And in our day, we have used royal titles and just applied it every which way. In the 1950s, there was a TV game show, and I'm going to name the title of it, and when I do, your mind is going to go somewhere else. I know that language evolves. 
I know that meanings change and the connotations are there. But the TV show was called Queen for a Day. And in this program, women participated and competed for the prize of being named Queen for a Day. And whoever won would have a robe draped around her shoulders and flowers placed in her arms and a crown on her head as she would cheerfully walk around the stage while a glib announcer faked enthusiasm for announcing the prize of a new washing machine. I think she might have been crying for several reasons. <laughs> Maybe wishing she had a partner who shared in the chores. Maybe being tired of being trapped in a given role. We belittle the title by applying it to everything. King James is no longer the Bible, but a basketball player. He's quite good. Or Elvis Presley, the king. Or the self-absorbed king in the Bud Light commercial who cannot find the rooftop party. <laughs> or the Burger King who has got to be the creepiest commercial character on TV. <laughs> he actually scares me when he comes on. <laughs> Maybe history helps us at this point. The origins of this emphasis of Christ the King come from 1925, when Pope Pius XI was troubled deeply by what was happening in Europe, the spread of fascism and nationalism, the racism and xenophobia of it all. Those times that said, if you cross this boundary, you're, you're over there, and you're a stranger to me, and you're my enemy, and I get to hate you. Or if you're of this orientation, I get to despise you and take your job, or if your skin tone is different from mine, you're inferior, or if your customs are different, or if your language is different, it's okay to belittle and denigrate and despise and make war on you. It's okay to take your property and your jobs. It's okay to put you in a concentration camp. It's okay to take your children. So Pope Pius declared what he hoped would help Christ the King Sunday, <clears throat> a reminder to Christians across Europe that allegiance belonged to Christ, not to dictators, not to empires, not to social movements that are born in hatred and suspicion, but to Christ. We find ourselves in similar times with millions all across the world fleeing droughts and despots, we have misogynistic, anti-Semitic rants from government leaders. We have the way just that we treat people. Runners World Magazine ran an article, a survey that they did of women runners, and 84% report being harassed while they were running. And of those, 94% said nobody stepped in to help. Denigrating others appears to be an okay sport. Well, certainly my little rant could go on, but how does the reign of Christ help us today? How do the pictures we have in our mind of God in our lives matter? In 1427 AD, there was an artist who depicted Christ as king. Red robe, scepter in one hand, 
a signal in the other of two fingers extended and a thumb. I assume the Trinity, but I don't know that, but that was the gesture. And a big tiered crown on his head. But the artist also drew another crown on the floor at his feet, as if inviting the viewer to choose what kind of crown you think Christ should wear. And so we're here on Christ the King Sunday deciding for ourselves what the shape of this king is about. And we're here with this text taken right out of Good Friday, the crucifixion of Christ the King. It sounds more like the execution of criminals, which it was. It's a depiction of humiliation and brutal mocking, a time of helplessness. How we, how we think of the one as king as the one sent from God when this is what takes place. <clears throat> but if we place ourselves within this narrative, maybe it helps. You decide. Would we be those religious scoffers in this narrative? They're taunting somebody who is dying a gruesome death. The NFL is a brutal sport, but when one of their folks in the field, even if it's the opposition, gets hurt, players kneel and hold hands and say a prayer. Here, they don't hold hands and they don't pray, they taunt. What causes them to betray the best of their faith, the best of human decency? The fear of losing their place? What wealth and position and power they had, Jesus was a threat to it. His kindness and mercy to the poor brought about cries of Messiah, and Messiah talk brought Rome and Roman power and Romans squashing uprisings like bugs. And who knows what's going to happen once Rome gets started squashing Their taunt of Jesus basically says, who has the power now? The fascism of Europe in the 20s and 30s spread like kudzu in the fertile ground of fear. And the Nazis gained power by saying, you need to be suspicious of those people and afraid of those people. They're different. They're Jews. They're gay. They're not Aryans like us. And living by suspicion and fear chipped away at basic human decency. But please know, though we say Hitler killed six million Jews, he didn't do it by himself. He had a lot of help, a lot of enablers, a lot of people looking the other way, a lot of ministers swallowing their voices. A lot of churches lining up behind him. A lot of people doing his bidding and just saying, well, they're orders. A lot of people voting for him. A lot of people shying away from the truth and from their duties. Perhaps we place ourselves not with the scoffers, but maybe we place ourselves with the thief, not the one who scoffs as well, but the one who asks for mercy and asks to be remembered. 
It's amazing. He asked Jesus to remember him. When you come in your kingdom, as if it's going to happen soon, and Jesus says it is. You're being put to death as a criminal. Wouldn't you rather say, let's just forget about this little instance here. Let's forget about my thieving. Let's forget about this messy death and maybe think about something good I did in my life. How do you want to be remembered? Strong, kind, someone who stood up for principle and for justice, who defended others, a good neighbor, someone who made the world a better place, someone who brought laughter, someone who told the truth, a dreamer, maybe somebody who worked hard to help somebody else's dreams come true, a lover of humanity, a practitioner of faith. Who wants to be remembered as broken and guilty and ashamed? Someone who wounded others with deed and word, somebody who took from others, somebody who was a bruised soul, weak and vulnerable, helpless. This dying thief is all of those things, and yet he asks to be remembered. And perhaps here we begin to understand God for our time. I, I don't understand how this person could possibly be more vulnerable. He is stripped of clothing. He's hung in the air for everybody to see. His crimes are announced. Any notion of dying with dignity or with courage are swallowed up by the pain and the raw fear of these moments. There is no hope that anybody can get him down from this, this fate. And yet he affirms a faint hope in some future that at that time paradise was more of a fuzzy idea than a developed one. And all he has to offer is his vulnerability. Remember me. Yet out of those real fears and vague notions, there looms this silhouette of the holy, the one who dies next to him. In this very spot, Friday night, right there, Billy from Friday Church gave his testimony. And he started by telling us that just two years ago, he was sleeping on the sidewalk over behind the Mid-City Mall. Hard for us to imagine Christ the King sleeping on a sidewalk behind the Mid-City Mall. But Jesus' definition of God takes shape as one who comes to us broken and offering forgiveness, as vulnerable and offering paradise himself victim of injustice and violence. He comes to us as one who celebrates weddings and dances with joy. He comes to us as one forgiving soldiers who are just following orders. He comes as one washing the 30 feet of his disciples, inviting us to humility. He comes as one who notices the hidden things in us and the hidden people among us and inviting us to see with loving eyes others and ourselves. 
He came not caring about royal titles, but caring about us. Didn't show up as a king with a conquering army, but as a servant leader showing us the, the, the very heart of God. You want to see what God is like? It's not found in Caesar or dictators or presidents. It's found here in the heart of God. He asked for mercy. Be remembering me. And Jesus says, Amen, which is what today means in this. You'll be with me in paradise. Common term of the day meaning a place of great bliss where God rules. So what image shall we take? Just yesterday I saw on the news an item about five kittens in Canada, newborn kittens. Yeah. The uh, cold night in Canada, very cold night, too young to survive. It was a stray dog who wrapped himself around the kittens and lay there with them, keeping them warm. And somebody finally saw them and called the animal shelter people, and they came and got the dog and the kittens and saved them. We sometimes think that the top person in an organization is the top dog. There's all kinds of trouble with that metaphor. But I want to suggest that maybe Jesus comes to us like a stray dog when we are so vulnerable, who wraps himself around us and holds us and reminds us there's a whole world of people who need that. What picture shall you take? Sadly, the fascism of our day is promoted so much by white Christians, and they really face a choice. If they truly understand this heart of God, it's either give up the fascism or give up calling it faith. They taunted Jesus, if you're the chosen one, save yourself. He didn't save himself, he chose to save us. And today, you and I are remembered. Amen.